Previously on the storyteller Naked Villainy, the forensic results linking Kit Harrison's sperm to the bedsheets were rigorously challenged. Sperm can survive washing. Yes. The defence confirmed the sperm could survive on the sheets for years. So as long as the item has been stored dry and out of UV light, um, then it could, it could last years, yes. And emphasis of DNA from a third person being found on a pillow. At least three, including Dr Pate. Yes. It's taken 45 years to bring a killer to court. And for the first time in UK history, you'll hear the full murder trial and witness justice being done. It was a brutal murder of a brilliant woman who was a rising star in genetic research. It would now be almost like a script from Morse. The investigators swarming over the, the dreaming spires of university land. There was kind of palpable feeling of evil in the air. I was told it was just a massive blood in here. Two decades on from confronting evil. So did you kill your ex-wife Brenda Page? Evil is being confronted by the law. Did you kill her? No. She knew it was coming. He said he was going to kill her. If he killed her, he would do it so that nobody would know. Will his true nature be unmasked? Are you familiar with the tale of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde? And can Brenda's own words help secure her killer's fate? A letter of a death foretold. This is the storyteller, Naked Villainy, written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquair. It's still only day six, and the next witness you may remember from series one, Christopher Gannicliffe, one of the leaders in his field of forensic science. He's an expert in blood pattern analysis, among other things. And any of the doubt that crept in during the cross-examination of his colleague Andrew Gibb was about to be obliterated. A warning that again, this is long but crucial evidence in this case. With so much circumstantial evidence, the Crown needed solid signs to make the jury believe beyond reasonable doubt the forensic evidence placed Kit Harrison at the murder scene. Listen carefully, because when you hear Dr Harrison's explanations in a future episode, this will be important to bear in mind. Please outline your professional qualifications. I hold a Bachelor of Science Honours Degree in Biological Sciences, a Master's Degree in Forensic Science. I'm a Chartered Biologist, a Fellow of the Royal Society of Biology, a member of the Chartered Society of Forensic Scientists and a member of the International Association of Bloodstain Pattern Analysts. On that latter part, the International Association of Blood Pattern Analysts, uh, what is that? So blood pattern analysis is the science of examining and interpreting bloodstain patterns to establish what activities led to those blood patterns. So whether they might be the result of blood dripping or blood spatter from a physical assault, for example. And that is the science of bloodstain pattern analysis. The association I speak of requires you to attend a course and then subsequently to gain a certain amount of experience and to teach in the subject as well. Okay. Could you outline your career history briefly for us? 
So uh, I'm a forensic biologist, which means I examine uh, a range of case types, such as homicides, physical assaults, and sexual assaults, examining for body fluids and bloodstain patterns, like I spoke about. Uh, I attend crime scenes and undertake examinations in the laboratory, identifying body fluids and examining bloodstain patterns, as I say. Currently, my role is the national technical lead scientist within Scottish Police Authority for general biology. And that means I am responsible for the scientific validity of the methods and the techniques we use and for providing training in areas such as bloodstain pattern analysis. Thank you. Uh, have you attended and given evidence in court on a number of occasions? Many times, yes. Okay. Turning to the issue of blood spatter, could you tell us a little more about what may happen if an object is, strikes a blood-soaked uh, body? For example, a person with being struck in the head uh, with a, an instrument which causes bleeding uh, and the striking is more than once, it's repeated. So could you explain in broad terms what might happen with regard to blood? Certainly. So when an object and that might be a fist, such as a punch, or it might be an object, such as a weapon, strikes a surface wet with blood, it imparts the force or the energy into that wet blood. The liquid blood is then broken up into blood droplets, and those are projected outwards and away onto surrounding surfaces, and perhaps onto the assailants themselves, creating a characteristic form of staining, blood spots of assorted sizes. Uh, and in very general terms, in looking at those blood spots, you can establish what direction they were directed from and also some idea of the force or the energy that was involved in creating that pattern. Does the shape of the blood, if, if it lands on a wall, for example, assist you in interpreting that? It does. So, for example, if a blood droplet strikes a surface perpendicularly, and by that I mean at right angles, then it would form a circular blood spot on the surface. If it strikes that surface obliquely, by which I mean at an angle of over 90 degrees, then it forms like an exclamation mark, a sort of elliptical-shaped stain. And the more oblique that impact, the more elongated the stain. <coughs> so you can establish from what direction the blood droplet struck the surface, and also what angle, in very broad terms, it struck it. So you can almost triangulate a pattern of blood spots on a wall back to the originating source. If an instrument is used to strike an object wet with blood on many occasions, can blood be cast from the implement? It can. Uh, it forms quite a characteristic pattern. So on the backswing of an object, blood is flung off the end of it. It's a bit like if you imagine a washing machine spinning on a cycle forces the water outwards through the drum. In the same way, the backward swing of the object forces the blood to the end of the object and it's flung from it on the end of the backswing. It can form a characteristic linear pattern of stains, by which I mean a line of blood spots that might be on a wall or on a ceiling, which in general, each line or pattern of staining indicates one backswing, if you like. Has there been some research conducted whereby a situation is created that under laboratory conditions that an object wet with blood is repeatedly struck? 
to see what sort of pattern might emerge. Indeed, there's many published papers in the peer-reviewed literature looking at just that thing, and it's a, it's a feature of the bloodstain pattern analysis courses that I teach to uh, our staff on their training courses, creating just those patterns. We simulate it with liquid blood, using animal blood, creating just those sorts of patterns with cast-off staining. If a person strikes an object <coughs> wet, wet with blood in front of the person, would you necessarily expect back spatter onto the person or would it radiate away? Perhaps contrary to what one might think intuitively, in general, the blood is projected away from the assailant because the force is directing the blood outwards and upwards and away. So in general, it usually tends to be projected onto surrounding surfaces and only to a, a lesser extent onto the individual who's wielding the weapon. Obviously, the more blows or the more impacts there are, then the greater the chance of more blood spatter resulting on their sleeves, for example, or the upper front of their garments. Could it be the case that a person with a, an instrument of some type strikes an object wet with blood repeatedly but would never have any blood on the person, the striker? It's certainly possible, and we simulate just that in our training courses and demonstrate that that is quite a realistic prospect. He was asked about being involved in the reinvestigation and he explained he was first involved in early 2020. Then in 2013, he took the lead role of the scientific reinvestigation. He explained he'd seen all the photos from the murder scene with Brenda's body in situ so he could make interpretations. They then recreated the scene using the sheet. Photographs of this were shown to the court. He was shown a number of other photos which showed stains on the other side of the duvet. What was this designed to show? So this is also the duvet cover. And what we try to simulate here is the photographs of the scene. And the person who you see in the white coveralls standing there, they are in the position of the deceased's legs. So they were, Brenda Page was seated on the bed and then lying backwards. And this is simulating that position. And again, the duvet has been moved to also simulate the position shown in the photographs uh, where the deceased is lying. So just so we understand this, using photographs from the scene in 1978 and noticing stain patterns, were you able to orientate the bedding material to try and re replicate what had occurred? I was, yes. Fortunately, there's some very characteristic bloodstain patterns which you can identify on the photographs from 1978 and then locate on the bedding now and therefore, as we have here, reconstruct the position of the bed or the bedding that you see in the photographs. What is that? And that's a similar photograph just from a slightly different orientation, again showing the position that you see the duvet uh, in the photographs at the scene. Photograph five, please. What is that to show? So that's showing um, the photograph you just saw with the duvet cover. This is simply lifting the lower portion of that up to show that behind that area, 
are certain other stains which aren't immediately apparent because these are on the opposite surface by the deceased legs. They then referred to his 110-page report he put together with a colleague and began by reading the section on the purpose of the report. We were asked by Police Scotland and Crown Office to examine bedding and other items from 13 Allen Street, Aberdeen, medical samples, nightwear and other items from the deceased Brenda Page, medical samples and items relating to Christopher Harrison, to his home address at 12 Mile End Place, Aberdeen, and to his vehicle LVA 426E, in an attempt to shed any light on events surrounding Brenda Page's death, and to identify if there is any scientific evidence that might indicate the involvement of Christopher Harrison or any other individual in the physical assault of the deceased and in any sexual activity that may have occurred. Thank you. We'll come back to the evidence in just a moment, but first I'd like to tell you about something I've discovered, which is making my life so much easier. And it's from new sponsor, HelloFresh. I've been trying out their delicious meals and there's so much to choose from. And as a busy woman who often goes to the shops and comes out with a block of cheese and not much else, I love being able to go online and pick my delicious and more adventurous meals. It makes wholesome eating so easy. The exact ingredients is delivered to my door and I'm really enjoying cooking for myself again. Delicious home-cooked meals with new inspiration. My latest have been veg and lentil shepherd's pie, crispy sesame chicken schnitzel, sticky hunter's chicken, which comes with a creamy gratin and roasted tenderstone broccoli. They are delicious. You just go onto the app and select the meals that you want and it makes it so easy for dietary requirements if you're a vegetarian or you're just looking for super quick recipes and healthy snacks. My brain doesn't have to work too hard and I'm having nutritious balanced meals. I also really like the fact that the subscription is flexible. So when I went on holiday, it was easy just to delay my next box until I returned. The convenience aspect really is a big bonus for me long term. I just pop everything in the fridge and my biggest decision is which one I'm going to eat first. And because it's so easy, I really am looking forward to my new kitchen adventures and trying some new things. Its value goes beyond just food. And as always, I want to pass on the benefits to you listeners. You can discover the delicious possibilities with HelloFresh. Just visit hellofresh.co.uk slash villainy. That's V-I-L-L-A. I-N-Y and unlock more in your kitchen just use that link that's hellofresh.co.uk slash villainy and you'll get 60% off your first order and 25% off the next two months try it you won't regret it now let's go back to the evidence he was asked to read the summary of the blood pattern interpretation the scene appears to have comprised two main areas of interest an apparent point of entry via a forced window at the rear or smaller bedroom and the site of assault within the larger bedroom in which the deceased was found. There were no clear indications of an assault or disturbance elsewhere in the flat. In our opinion, within the larger bedroom, the deceased had been forcibly struck multiple times to the head 
whilst in approximately the position in which she was found on the bed. For at least some of this assault, the deceased was sat upright at the edge of the bed rather than lying back as she was found. A pattern of several small, arc-like impressions in blood on the fitted sheet by the deceased may have been the result of several blows or impacts with a bloody weapon where the blows missed the deceased. It is possible that some of the numerous dark stains visible in photos of the area around the doorway through to the rear bedroom are cast off blood stains, the result of blood flung off a weapon on its back swings as wielded by the assailant. The duvet was in approximately the position in which it was found, largely slipped to the floor at the foot of the bed as these blows were inflicted. The two pillows found next to the deceased were displaced during this assault, such that they received blood spatter on both aspects. A trail of occasional blood smears and stains elsewhere in the deceased's flat appears to point to the assailant or assailants having left via the front door after the assault. We cannot say who might have deposited an impression in blood found on the undermost surface of the fitted sheet or if it is directly related to the assault upon the deceased. It may have arisen inadvertently during the scene examination process, for example. Could you just expand on that latter part, please? Yes, yeah, so when we were undertaking our examination of the sheet, there is a, an impression in blood on the undersurface of the bedsheet. So clearly, for this to relate to the assault, for example, if it was an impression of a weapon, for example, then that would have required the bedsheet to have been pulled back, that impression to have been made on the sheet, and then the sheet to have been put back and tucked back into place because the crime scene examiners at the time found the sheet in its normal place. The alternative is that somehow it arose during the crime scene examination and retrieval of the sheet. And there are some photographs showing, I think we saw perhaps the first photograph you showed me with the sheet pulled back and it looks like it might be then the corner of it sitting in wet blood, the pool of wet blood on the, on the sheet. So that may explain how blood got transferred to its underside. If you could just point out what you mean here. Yes, yeah, so this is the, the bed sheet and you can see this photograph was taken, as you can see, after the deceased was removed and the duvet cover was taken away and you can see that the sheet is now pulled away from the corner. That isn't how it appeared in some of the earlier crime scene photographs. So clearly at some point, perhaps during the recovery of the deceased body, that sheet has got pulled away from the corner. But what I notice there, and I'm sure the court can see, is the corner of that sheet is then sitting in wet blood. Yeah. So I'm speculating that perhaps that might have resulted in some blood being transferred to its undersurface, which is what I found. Just below halfway, deceased bedding. Yes. Could you read that for us, please? In our opinion, the stain number one on the fitted sheet in a position corresponding to the position of the deceased buttocks as she was found is likely to be a stain of vaginal material. There are two small semen stains close to stain number one near to the position of the deceased's buttocks. The presence in one of these stains, which is stain number two, 
of DNA types matching the corresponding DNA types in Christopher Harrison's DNA profile could be explained if an object, such as fingers or the duvet cover, wet with Christopher Harrison's semen had been in contact with the sheet. We cannot say from whom the other semen stain, which is, semen, uh, which is stain three, I should say, could have originated. Our examinations for traces of DNA from anyone who might have been in contact with or in proximity to the fitted sheet found no DNA attributable to anyone other than to Brenda Page herself. Traces of sperm were detected in the likely vaginal stain number one on the sheet and in some of the DNA areas sampled for anyone who had been in contact with or in proximity to the sheet. In the case of one of these areas, which is number 18, the sperm fraction contained DNA types matching the corresponding DNA types in Christopher Harrison's DNA profile. However, in our view, we think the most likely explanation for these traces of sperm in the likely vaginal stain and in some of the areas sampled for traces of DNA is that dried flakes of semen have flaked off the nearby stains two and three on the fitted sheet or from the semen stain number one on the duvet cover. In our opinion, a semen stain, stain one on the duvet cover, containing DNA types matching the corresponding DNA types in Christopher Harrison's DNA profile could be explained if an object, such as a fingers or fitted sheet, wet with Christopher Harrison's semen had been in contact with a duvet cover. In our view, the location of this stain indicates that a deposition preceded the assault on the deceased while she was on the bed. Right. Just pause there. Could you just explain, expand on that for us, please? Just the latter paragraph? Yes. So when you were showing me some earlier photographs and it showed the duvet cover in its position having slipped to the corner of the bed and we were holding up the duvet to show some other stains, one of those is the semen stain I was speaking about just then. So what that shows is that it isn't in an exposed surface of the duvet cover. The blood spatter that appears to have resulted from the assault upon the deceased is all on the upper aspects of the duvet. Uh, and on those exposed aspects of the fitted sheet. If you lift up the corner where the duvet has slipped to, that area is shielded from blood spatter and doesn't have any blood spatter. So for that reason, I can be confident that when all this blood spatter was created, it was when the duvet was in its position, slipped to the corner of the bed, leaving the sheet exposed to receive blood spatter and the upper aspects of the duvet receiving blood spatter. However, the semen stain on the duvet cover is on the underside. It would be by the deceased's feet, shielded from any blood spatter. Hence the reason that I say its deposition must have preceded the assault, or at least the bloodshed aspects of the assault upon yeah. Brenda Page. Yeah, that's going to ask you about that. It preceded the, the assault which produced blood. Indeed. Okay. We cannot say if the query vaginal stain on the fitted sheet or the semen stains on the fitted sheet and duvet cover were deposited at the time of the incident, or if they may have been the result of sexual activity in the previous days, weeks, or even longer. If we just pause there, uh, it's pretty clear what you're, you're saying there, but 
could you exclude the semen stain being contemporaneous with the attack? No, it's, it, it's certainly possible if it's particularly on the duvet cover, it, it preceded the phase of the assault we're speaking about, but its deposition could have been minutes earlier, for example, rather than weeks, I can't say. Yes, but, but also you go on to say it could be days, weeks or even longer. Indeed. Could you read the last sentence for us, please? However, however, in our view, the fitted sheet and duvet cover had not been laundered since the stains were deposited. And the condition of the bedding would suggest that laundering was a relatively frequent occurrence. What do you mean by that latter sentence? So when we're searching for semen staining, we use a technique looking for a, a chemical that's present in semen. That chemical is water soluble, so it dissolves in water very easily. And we use that for our screening technique. So we use a big sheet of blotting paper, white filter paper. We dampen it, press it onto the bedding in this case. And any semen that is present is transferred onto our sheet of filter paper. And we spray it with a reagent that produces a, a characteristic color change if semen is present. However, because the chemical we're looking for is so water soluble, if bedding, for example, has been laundered, then that technique simply doesn't work because the chemical we're looking for have dissolved in the wash so that we know when we detect this chemical that in this case the bedding hasn't been washed because that chemical would have disappeared. Yeah. And the last part of your sentence was and the, con and the condition of the bedding would suggest that laundering was a relatively frequent occurrence. It's perhaps obvious what you mean but just tell the ladies and gentlemen what is meant by that sentence. So the bedding was not dirty, it didn't smell dirty, it wasn't in an unkempt condition. Uh, many of the crime scenes I attend, major scenes of homicide, I occasionally come across bedding that, for one reason or another, isn't washed for many weeks, months, ever, and it is in a very sorry state. It's very characteristic from its condition that it isn't washed from the smell and its appearance. That wasn't the case here. This is clean, tidy bedding that clearly is regularly washed, or at least it's not long since its last wash and hasn't been used significantly since, since last washing. Thank you very much. The cross-examination started with looking at an independent report into semen and the fact that seminal fluid, which they're referring to as AP, can be mimicked by other things. So far as AP is concerned, that is something for which you can get a positive result, not necessarily from seminal fluid. That's right. There are some, some substances which can mimic the reaction, so to speak. And do they include vaginal secretions? They do. Uh, anything else? Uh, sometimes some fungal material, for example, and there are some foodstuffs which can mimic it as well. When you talk about fungal material, what is it you're, you're thinking of? Well, sometimes it can be the result of uh, a fungal infection, for example, in vaginal fluid itself, or it can be you can get a similar sort of reaction from, uh, for example, uh, the liquid you might get in drains, for example. Sorry, I didn't catch that. The liquid you might get in drains or, you know, the sort of microbial decomposition, if you like. Uh, you, you mentioned foodstuffs? Yes. Like? 
So, for example, some vegetable material, usually in its raw state, so for example, like cauliflower or cabbage. So usually things that you would see that they are present anyway. Oh. Uh, and is it also found in faecal material? It is, sometimes. And so far as your test is concerned, you ascertain whether or not you get a reaction to that. And am I right in saying you can get a reaction to that, presumably because it can be produced by other things, and get no sperm found at all? That's right. And in those situations, you would not indicate, uh, as a scientist, that you had uh, uncovered semen, so to speak. To confirm the presence of semen, we either need to identify spermatozoa in that stain or use an alternative chemical test, because there are obviously some people who don't produce spermatozoa, so we use a different chemical test to confirm semen. We discussed the idea of some people who do not produce spermatozoa with your colleague, and that would include people who'd had a vasectomy, is that right? Indeed. Mr McConaughey highlights a section of the report which refers to semen deposited in the anus or vagina and that it will subsequently drain onto items worn next to the genitals, such as underwear. You will be aware from your examination of the materials in this case that there was a, a pair of pants recovered in this case. Yes. In the laundry basket, or certainly in that area, from the home of Dr Page. That's right. And from the analysis of that, there were sperm found, but no acid phosphatase. Yes. And a conclusion, I think, was reached that it appeared as if these items had been laundered, albeit not several times. Indeed. Uh, and you would agree with that? I would, yes. All right. So th this is, I think, the idea, this is what it's talking about here, that you get drainage which will collect within the pants. That's right. The author here says, I would normally expect semen deposited in this way to persist on the item of clothing until it has been thoroughly washed. Now, do, do you have any views on the word thoroughly in that sentence? Yes, it's a little ambiguous because we're talking about the two components of semen. So there's the acid phosphatase, which would disappear on a first wash immediately, and there's the spermatozoa, which would persist for potentially several washes because they get trapped in the fabric weave. Uh, so, for example, if we were looking at un underwear, if we were looking at underwear in the crotch of underwear, as I think we're talking about here, if we didn't get an acid phosphatase reaction, that might indicate that the pants have been washed, but you might still find spermatozoa, which were pers persisting for subsequent washes, perhaps two, three, four washes, for example. You, you said there um, at the start of your answer, I think, that the acid phosphatase would disappear on the first wash. You would expect that. Well, that's kind of where I was going, I suppose. When you say you would expect that, does that mean it does not necessarily happen? The key, perhaps, is for a washing. If it was briefly immersed in a bucket of water, I might still expect it to persist. If it went for a washing machine cycle, I would not expect it. Would it depend, potentially, on things like the temperature of the water, the detergent? Even then, I think in a washing machine cycle, I would expect acid phosphatase to disappear because it is so readily water-soluble, regardless of the detergent. Mm -hmm. 
Is this something upon which there has been a lot of scientific testing or not? Yes, there was a flurry of published literature. I think I have several of the papers with me today uh, around 2015 or so, looking at just this issue about whether you might expect it to persist. And generally, the, what I'm describing seems to be the consensus that phosphatase would disappear. It's words like generally, Stoganoglyph, which caused me perhaps to, to ask the question. So something can happen, I suppose, 90 times out of 100, and that would be generally, but it wouldn't be always. As I say, I think it's predicated on the type of wash. And as I indicated, I think if it was briefly immersed in a basin of water, that is a very different thing from a washing machine cycle where the continued immersion would be you one would expect that enzyme, the chemical, to disappear relatively quickly. So, <coughs> carrying on on the same page, not the same paragraph, but the same page, you'll see there's a, a paragraph headed up semen and washing. Yes. If semen is deposited onto an item of clothing or bedding and the item is subsequently washed, I would not normally expect to obtain a positive reaction to the initial screening test for semen, is what it says. Indeed. The initial screening test for semen will be the AP test that you've talked about. That's right. The use of the phrase, I would not normally, might tend to suggest that it might happen, but it wouldn't be normal. Well, my interpretation of that, and again, this is written by somebody else, but my interpretation would be just what I'm saying, namely, it depends on whether we're talking about brief immersion as opposed to a wash cycle in a washing machine. The reason he's pushing this point is that the AP or sperm fluid being present makes it very difficult to match up with what Kit Harrison is going to try and claim is the reason for the presence of his sperm. But Mr Gannicliffe seems firm that it would only have been there if the sheets hadn't been washed since it was deposited. The KC then re-reads this section of the report you heard previously regarding sperm surviving a wash cycle and potentially being transferred onto other items in the wash which previously had no contact with the sperm. So far as the, the bedding in this instance is concerned, you, uh, in your report describe it as the condition of the bedding would suggest that laundering was a relatively frequent occurrence. Now, first of all, presumably you would agree with me that's a, a somewhat subjective issue. Yes, it's a relative term. It certainly seems to be relatively uh, recently washed insofar as it are not used significant amounts since. Yeah, I, 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 that's really perhaps the, the part of your evidence about that that I'm interested in. That an item could have been washed some considerable time ago, but only just been used. So it would still give the impression of not being dirty, but had not been recently washed. That's right. And one couldn't, as it were, tell the difference between the two things. Indeed. If the semen stains have been deposited on the, she the sheet and the bedding, on the duvet, I should say, months earlier, and then that bedding had been put away in a cupboard unwashed for many months, and then taken out of that cupboard and put back onto the bed, it would then be several months since those stains were deposited, but 
because the bedding wouldn't be dirty, for example, because it hadn't been used. Yeah, and I suppose, forgetting for the moment the question of the AP, which we've discussed to the extent I think we can discuss it, but the sperm could have been on the sheets for however long, the sheet and the duvet, those items could have been washed and put away, and it's possible that the sperm would have persisted on the items. Yes, if we're talking about the spermatozoa out with yes. the AP positive areas, then yes. that is true. So, acid phosphatase we know comes from different things. Acid phosphatase would also come from someone, for example, who had had a vasectomy. It would be the sperm that didn't come. That's right. And acid phosphatase, as we've discussed, also comes from vaginal secretions. That's right. If one had, I think the only way I can phrase this is background sperm, sperm which existed on the sheets and or on the duvet after a wash cycle, and acid phosphatase became uh, apparent on the sheet or the duvet after that incident, so separately, would you get the same result? It was precisely that reason that we took 29 different areas from the sheet and cut those out to see what the background area, the background level, if you like, is the phrase you used, of spermatozoa was like. So it put into context the amount of spermatozoa we were finding in the AP positive areas. So whilst in only two of those areas we found very small levels of spermatozoa, we found greater numbers in the AP positive areas, indicating that they were associated with that staining. They weren't simply a background, if you like. Uh, and just taking the areas where you have acid phosphatase and sperm, would the result be the same? Let's forget about your testing for the moment. Would the result look the same, whether it was background sperm or not? There was a greater number of spermatozoa than I would expect simply as a background in those stained areas rather than the background areas. Some of them seem to be described as simply trace levels. Yes, some of them were, but there were lower numbers still in the surrounding areas. Lower than trace? Yes, I mean, the way we assess it is the number you see in a, in a microscope slide. So there are still, still a sliding scale, and there were slightly greater numbers within the stained areas than out with the stained areas. This is not what he wanted to hear. Mr McConaughey has been trying to prove that the sperm could be attributed to his client but the sperm fluid, or AP, to someone or something else. He moves on to Mr Gannacliffe's report and the issue of the killer having blood or DNA on them belonging to Brenda. And although you were asked a question, if I understand it, as to whether it was theoretically possible that there could be repeated blows by someone with a weapon who would not have blood on them, and I think you said that was a realistic possibility, if that's, if I got your phrase right? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's certainly possible, but obviously the greater the number of impacts, then the greater the likelihood that they will receive some spatter. Yeah, 
I, I suppose, like everything else, the more often you hit into a blooded area, the more likely there is of you getting some of that blood on yourself. Indeed. But in this case, I think, we can perhaps go further and say that whether it's theoretically possible or not, it doesn't seem to be what's happened here. Because in terms of material that you were provided with, you were advised, I think, that there was blood staining on door handles, I think a bathroom light possibly or something of that nature. Bathroom light switch. Bathroom light switch, door handles, I think an internal door handle and on the inside and outside of the front door. That's right. And all of that information was used to deduce that the assailant had left by leaving through the front door, basically. See, it certainly seems a likely explanation. Makes sense. But what also makes sense from that is that the assailant had blood on his or her hands when they did so. Yes. And I think the blood at some point was tested, albeit back then, and was of a blood group which matched that of Brenda Page. That's right. Uh, which I think was blood group O, is that correct? It was. Uh, and it did not match the blood group of Dr. Harrison, who was blood group E, I think. That's correct. So, whilst theoretically possible or not, it seems in this case that the assailant had blood on their hand or on their person somewhere and was leaving it in places around about the flat. Yes. One of the reasons... Therefore, presumably, that you would be asked to look at, for example, Dr. Harrison's car, would be that if he had used that car to drive away from the scene, there was a, a chance, not definite, but there was a chance that he could have left blood on the door handle of his car, steering wheel of his car, gear stick of his car, anything of that nature. Yes. And in terms of anything you were shown in this particular case, am I right in saying there was no evidence of that? I believe not, no. Similarly, perhaps, if someone having carried out an attack in which they have become contaminated with someone's blood then if they go home, they might leave that blood in their own house somewhere. Yes. Perhaps even when they're trying to clean it off in the sink or whatever the situation may be. Indeed. So again, there is the prospect of recovering material from that person's house. Yes. That's right. Uh, and also from any clothing, for example. Um, and again, from what you were shown in connection with this case. Was there any evidence to suggest any recovery of blood of that type? I believe there were occasional blood stains found on items, but nothing that was shown to in subsequent testing to give a result that could help identify who it might be from. Right. He then refers to the results relating to the duvet cover. 
and clarifies that the duvet had a darker top side and a lighter underside, which wasn't clear in the black and white photographs. And so far as the stain that you talk about on the duvet, do I understand that was on the, I don't know what the correct word is, the, not the uppermost side? Yes, it would be on the under aspect, the, the light surface you were describing, it would be on that surface. And so far as that is concerned, was that amongst cellular material which was deemed to be vaginal material or not? It wasn't. It just seemed to be uh, neat semen staining, for want of a better phrase. Sorry, it just seemed to be? Neat semen staining. By that I mean it's not adulterated with vaginal fluid, for example. Right. And in terms of... Uh, how that got there, is there any way of determining whether it got there directly or whether it got there from transfer from the sheet, for example? The sheet is one explanation, or perhaps semen on fingers, for example. What I don't believe it's the result of is either vaginal drainage after sexual intercourse with ejaculation in the vagina, because it would have a greater content of vaginal cells, and it doesn't appear to be simply a, a straightforward ejaculation directly onto the duvet because there would be far more material present. So it looks like it's been indirectly transferred from something. The, this is, I think, if I recall correctly, one area in which what's talked about are traces of sperm. I would have to check the phrasing there. That's correct. That's correct, is it? Yes, it is. Oh. Uh, and traces is, in terms of how you would describe something, as small as it gets, is that right? It means in our, the slide we've made for microscopy, there are only several spermatozoa visible. Right. But there's nothing below traces, is there? Uh, there isn't, no. I'm going to pause here before they move on to the issue of how the evidence was collected in 1978 and the reliability of it as evidence but hopefully you've been able to follow along with what Mr Gannicliffe has said. He's clear, precise and expert. And so far, the defence have failed in their attempt to get him to agree to a scenario which is being carefully teed up for when the defence case begins. In the next episode of The Storyteller Naked Villainy, Brenda's cutting-edge work linked to the science that might prove her killer's identity. It's really ironic that 45 years later um, that Brenda's very early work in this field having a crucial role to play in the evidence that we're hearing today. The impossibility of the sperm fluid being accidentally transferred. Well, it isn't possible to transfer acid phosphatase as a, as a stain, for example, because that's been applied as a liquid and the Crown suggests a reason for the little scientific trace of Brenda's killer. If some form of barrier on the hands, gloves for example. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review as it makes a huge difference to guiding people to hearing this important story. This is an entirely independent production and your support is greatly appreciated. And if you want to hear exclusive interviews, longer episodes and insights, please head to the Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening. This is a piece of history, and you are for the first time in this format 
witnessing justice being done.